Thank you for joining me today for our very important podcast entitled, Do You Vape? A Doctor's Guide to Obtaining an Accurate Vaping History. It is co-sponsored by the Tobacco Action Committee and the Behavioral Science and Health Services Research Assembly. My name is Laura Myers, and I am a pulmonary critical care physician at Mass General Hospital and co-web director for the BSHSR Assembly. I'm joined today by two experts. Dr. Alona Jaspers is a professor in the Department of Pediatrics at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. She is an expert in inhalational toxicology. Dr. Sucharita Kerr is an adult pulmonologist and critical care physician at Tufts Medical Center and assistant professor at Tufts University School of Medicine. She is also the medical director of the adult pulmonary clinic, runs the Asian Pulmonary Clinic, and is the director for inpatient services in the Department of Medicine. Thank you both for joining me to discuss this very important topic. Thank you, Laura, for having me. Thanks for having me. With the epidemic rise in vaping among teenagers and young adults and the cases of vaping-related lung diseases and deaths from across the country, this is a timely podcast focused on how to take a vaping history. So, Dr. Kirk, can you uh, tell us how often are people, uh, physicians, asking patients if they vape? So, Laura, the simple answer is not enough. You know, physicians often don't think about asking about vaping, but the recent surge, as you described, in the use of electronic cigarettes and the reports of pulmonary diseases linked to them has raised a high alert among physicians for the need to ask such questions. Um, a 2017 study looked at over 9,000 electronic health records of patients and used natural language processing to attempt to identify documentation of ENDS, or electronic nicotine delivery devices. These included um, records of, people, uh, of patients over 12 years of age. And while the documentation of vaping history has tremendously increased over time, um, even at the end of that study, only about 9.5 out of 10,000 patients were asked such a history of vaping. So overall, the observed number of patients with a documented history of e-cigarette use was really, really low. So as physicians, we really should do better than this, especially in light of, a, of the current epidemic, similar to how we routinely ask about a smoking history. I agree. It sounds like it's a very important piece of the history. And Dr. Jaspers, as you know, there are, is a wide range of devices that are out uh, on the market that people are using. Can you describe that range of devices and describe what an e-cigarette is? Okay. So, there, so there's, a, there's a lot. So let me try to answer your question in a, a sort of systematic chronological way. Um, the first e-cigarettes marked in the U.S. were what we now uh, refer to as the cigalikes, which pretty much look like cigarettes. And the, this, these devices were originally designed by Han Lick, who is a pharmacist in Beijing, is really the original inventor of the modern uh, e-cigarette. Shortly thereafter, however, uh, we actually start, started seeing what's called the vape pens. These are uh, devices with refillable tanks, which allow the user to refill the tanks with e-liquids of their choice. And this is where a lot of the sort of 7,000 flavoring agents come in. Uh, this is also when the marketing of flavored e-liquids really started to explode. Uh, so we have all kinds of different flavorings, nicotine concentrations, potential other additives, such as vitamin, caffeine, melatonin. Now I've just recently heard about uh, sugars and, and sweeteners 
So following that, on the other hand, now came what is often referred to as the third or fourth generation box mods, uh, which are the devices preferred by the users who like a big cloud or the cloud chasers um, of smoke. So these devices provide additional flexibility for the user with regards to the output, with regards to uh, the cloud, and how much they can actually inhale. These box mods also have refillable tanks and can generate all kinds of different aerosol concentrations, amounts, depending on the setting of your box mod, such as the you change the wattage or the voltage of uh, these box mods. So they're, they're very, uh, very sort of intricate electronic devices. And then starting at the end of 2015 or beginning of 2016 is when we started seeing the pod-based devices like Juul. And they really started to quickly dominate the market. These devices have much lower cloud output. They require the user to buy replacement pods, so you can't really refill them easily yourself. However, people have figured out how to do that. But they have a really sleek design and reach an incredible popularity among the sort of youth and young adults very, very quickly. There are now uh, several different pod-based devices available, including disposable devices or SIG, which seem to be very, very popular among high schoolers. And in the meantime, a variety of other e-cigarettes and vape wear, where you actually have like a hoodie with an incorporated e-cigarette, have been developed. Uh, anything from an Apple Watch-like device that literally looks like an Apple Watch uh, to an e-cigarette that looks like an inhaler, to an iPhone case that can also function as an e-cigarette. So uh, the creativity ran wild here, and uh, there are lots and lots of different devices available now. Thank you very much. That's very helpful. And besides the type of device, what else would you say is important to ask patients in the clinic? Yeah, so that's, that's because of this really rapid development of the devices and how quickly it really developed. Uh, the disconnect between what is actually being used and how users refer to it and what scientists and healthcare providers know, um, we really probably failed to capture the problem much earlier. So there was a clear disconnect between the way the users refer to the devices and the way healthcare professional sciences refer or, or talked about it. Um, as an example, um, the National Youth Tobacco Survey data actually saw a decline or a leveling off in e-cigarette use from 2015 to 2017. And actually, people thought this whole e-cigarette thing was just a hype and it was actually not really um, that prevalent among the youth and young adults. So the notion really was that maybe this initial increase was just, just, was just a quick peak. Uh, however... That was also the time when Juul was introduced, and it appears that Juul was not completely captured in that 2016-2017 survey, since high schoolers would answer yes to the question, would, would never answer yes to the question, do you use e-cigarettes, because they actually considered Juuling its own independent thing. It's sort of like you're not going to refer to a tissue as a tissue, refer to it as a Kleenex. It's really branding. So we saw that in 2018 when the specific use of Juul was actually collected, so the, the questions were changed. And the number of high schoolers using e-cigarettes or Juul jumped to over 20%. Uh, this historical progression clearly also demonstrates that uh, the need is, there's, a really good, there's a really, really important need to ask the right questions. Asking a teenager whether they use nicotine or tobacco products will return in an answer of no. They don't sort of consider that as the right, um, that's the right habit that describes what they're doing. 
So they're really not perceived as tobacco and nicotine products in that particular demographic. But I also think that this is why we have possibly failed to really capture more comprehensively and earlier the clinical manifestations associated with vaping. There are currently no ICD codes to categorize vaping in electronic health records or in electronic medical records, such as EPIC, also include a very basic and often clumsy way to document vaping or e-cigarette history in the medical history, and that needs to be changed now. Uh, we really need to work on this really, really quickly. Um, other issues include the immense variety of different devices and flavors, which is what I alluded to earlier, uh, that can be used, and it's really not included in the um, the history, and that, that, doesn't, that doesn't even include all of the vaping devices for THC, which seems to be now emerging as one of the biggest culprits in this outbreak, which is a whole nother different issue. So quantification of vaping has been really difficult uh, to assess. Is it puffs per day? Is it mills or is it mills of e-liquid per week? Is it pods per day? What is the sort of metric here that we need to use? which we already have used in the pack year history for cigarette smoking. So we know how to, how to quantitate that, but we really have no way of quantitating it for e-cigarettes. Another thing is which flavoring agents are inhaled, and if so, how many different ones and how often. Bottom line, there's a lot, a lot of different variables to capture the vaping history, and we have to start really paying more close attention into document, documenting all of these different variables in anyone's clinical history. I see. Thank you very much. So let's say I'm seeing a patient in clinic, for example. How do I start a conversation? Dr. Kerr, can you answer that? Yeah. I mean, just like uh, Ilona describes, there are so many terminologies and so many devices and substances. I would really start by having a frank conversation. Do you really inhale anything other than air? Or are your lungs exposed to anything other than air? Sometimes when I ask, do you vape or do you use electronic cigarettes? Some may say, I don't vape, but I jewel. But, you know, it's really important to note that Juul is really an e-cigarette brand, and it's all the same uh, product. Um, hence, I find starting with an open-ended question is quite helpful. Uh, some of the other questions I start that helps me assess is, you know, when did they start using the electronic cigarette? Why did they do that? And some of the answers that they can provide can help us counsel the patients uh, later in the conversation. Excellent. And um, I know that the CDC has wanted uh, folks to bring in their devices if they end up with a vaping-induced lung injury, for example. Do you encourage your outpatients to bring in their devices so that you're actually seeing what they're using, or are they not allowed in the clinic? Well, so, no, I have had patients uh, bring out their devices from their pockets uh, when we start to talk about uh, a vaping history or if, if they use electronic cigarettes. Um, CDC, like you said, does recommend that we ask for a history of vaping um, in the last 90 days, particularly as it relates to this outbreak. And if somebody's having signs and symptoms of pulmonary illness, then to specifically ask if they have vaped in the last uh, 30 days or so. And I think, you know, the further discussion, if, if the physician feels that the vaping is what is probably triggering their symptoms or causing their pulmonary symptoms, uh, that is when you can take the next step in asking them for their devices, the details of the substance in the device, the device itself, flavorings, where they, have, where they may have bought the device from. Sort of those are the next step of questions that would, that would start. I see. Okay. And who should we really be asking in pulmonary clinics? Should we be screening everyone in a social history about their, uh, you know, pulmonary habits outside of um, typical cigarettes? 
I, you know, it's really been the biggest change in my practice in the recent weeks is, you know, specifically asking patients if they vape. Um, we cannot assume that they'll volunteer this information, and they may not even know that they need to be talking about this. So I think given so many unknowns of e-cigarette use, and we we don't know the incidence or the prevalence uh, in general except for survey data, um, I think it's important to ask pretty much everybody uh, you may interact with, you know, specifically because patients perceive vaping and smoking differently, right? So they may say that they don't smoke, but then they may go on to say, but I use e-cigs. Um, and so it's it's really a different terminology um, that I think it's important that healthcare providers uh, delve a little bit deeper into. And I think some of the other benefits of asking patients if they vape are, one, it serves as an opportunity for us to counsel them on the known harms of vaping. Secondly, it can help us better understand the prevalence of practice among our own patients, whether it's inpatients or outpatients. And then really, you know, if it indeed is a trigger for their lung disease, that's another opportunity for us as healthcare providers to intervene. I see. And it sounds like uh, this advice would apply not only to adult physicians, internal medicine physicians, pulmonary doctors, but also to pediatricians. Would you recommend the same advice to uh, a pediatric uh, physician speaking with a teenager who vapes, for example? Uh, absolutely, yeah. I think they probably see a lot more um, of their population of patients who are using these devices, yeah. And what would you tell patients or counsel patients who are using e-cigarettes right now? I think the message is simple. You know, we should be telling our patients this product should not be used and that they are harmful. So if somebody, if I ask somebody if they use e-cigarette and they said no, I would say that's great, good job, do not start. While if somebody's, you know, the most common question that I get is um, if somebody is interested in using e-cigarettes for smoking cessation, right, or have already started to vape or use e-cigs for smoking cessation, I use that opportunity to review the wonderful ATS handout on e-cigarettes. I discussed that, you know, the research studies around um, using e-cigs to help somebody quit combustible cigarettes have not consistently shown that they are effective. Um, and there is a big debate even among healthcare providers, right? So other research su suggests that smokers who use e-cigarettes are less likely to stop smoking. Young adults who use e-cigarettes are more likely to start smoking. Um, also, these products don't have regulations around them, so they around manufacturing or contents, and so they may be harmful. The, the recent um, e-cigarette and vaping-associated pulmonary illness has further complicated this discussion. Um, and so if patients are worried about returning to combustible cigarettes, say they've already started vaping and they're worried that they stop vaping and they're going to go back to traditional cigarettes, well, that's a good opportunity to have a conversation and directing them and really working with them to identify an FDA-approved smoking cessation option, right, such as the patch or the nicotine gum or, or varenicline. Excellent. That's very helpful. In in your practice, are you talking to patients about or asking patients where they're getting their products? You know, I have started to do that. Um, it's also an opportunity for us to counsel them that, you know, they shouldn't be uh, getting these products off the street, um, that these devices should not be modified at home. Um, and that the biggest thing is if they're having symptoms and they're vaping, um, they should really be seeking medical attention sooner rather than later, particularly if they develop uh, pulmonary symptoms. I see. 
And it sounds like the CDC now is asking clinicians to uh, report cases of a suspected lung injury. As part of that reporting, what does the CDC actually recommend in taking the history? So really taking from the, from the CDC website, um, if an e-cigarette or vaping product, um, broadly speaking, is suspected as um, involved in, this, in the possible etiology of the patient's lung injury, and there's a patient, so, so physicians are really advised to take a much more closer um, detailed history, and that will include uh, but not limited to actually um, understanding the substances used. So is it nicotine, any of the cannabinoids, THC, CBD, CBD oil, synthetic cannabinoids, et cetera, et cetera, uh, or the dank vapes, which obviously have now risen to a lot of the attention flavors or other substances. So just basically getting an understanding as to what the chemical exposure was. Then there's the sources of the substances. So in other words, was this actually commercially obtained from a, uh, you know, from a reasonable vendor? Was it in bottles, cartridges? Was it homemade, uh, uh, homemade done? Or was it sort of obtained on the black market? What kind of devices were used? So are these basically taking the manufacturer, the brand, the settings, the serial number, all of those kinds of information, uh, where the product was uh, purchased, and method of substance use. So was it used in an aerosolization, which is normal for a lot of the sort of e-cigs, uh, including Juul? Was it dabbing or dripping, which is a very different process? And then other potential uh, cases, sort of was it actually sharing an e-cigarette or a vaping product, which is very popular, especially among high schoolers, um, and also determine if any of the remaining product uh, including the devices, liquids, or anything like that, is available for testing, and that needs to be sent to the CDC. They're collecting all of these uh, in a coordinated way through the state uh, health departments. Um, however, as Sudarita as, uh, actually already indicated, this is really triggered by the first question of the healthcare provider. And I love that she's sort of using it now as an open-ended question. Do you use and do you breathe anything other than air? Um, so because that really starts the conversation. So rather than sort of boxing yourself in as to what you're asking. So um, the other thing that, that I think is also rising to the level of more national attention is obviously pulmonologists and pediatric pulmonologists are very much aware of this now. But um, we've actually had cases here where a patient presented with GI symptoms, fever, and night sweats, but no real lung uh, pathology, and then the lung pathology was actually detected afterwards. So I think we need to sort of cast the net a little wider in terms to um, to really sort of understand and capture all these patients. So it sounds like this resource from the CDC, essentially a checklist, can be very helpful for clinicians, especially if they're taking their first uh, vaping-related history for a patient who potentially has a lung injury. Could, you mentioned dabbing and dripping. Can you explain what those are? So dabbing is really where you are uh, generating a very concentrated sort of crystalline or waxy form of DHC, and you literally that's, you dab um, a piece of, uh, you know, you dab your device in there and then ge generate a very concentrated cloud through that. I may have not described it properly, but um, there's plenty of YouTube videos out there that really sort of describe it. Dripping is actually sort of like an older method where people are actually 
putting the e-liquid directly onto the coil and not basically aerosolizing it, but really directly using it through there. So it's a much more concentrated and immediate form of inhaling the liquids. I'm not sure how populate the, the dripping still is, but the dabbing certainly is. I see. And lastly, um, Dr. Kerr, um, you had mentioned earlier that there isn't a way to bill for uh, counseling related to vaping. Is there uh, a way to document it or a, kind of a, a recommended method so that we are um, documenting and billing as best we can in the current system? Yeah, I mean, you know, Laura, that's a really good question. Um, and it highlights a gap and a pragmatic challenge for healthcare providers. You know, there's a structured place in most EMRs about documenting a smoking history, pack per day, et cetera. But uh, the vaping history, a lot of it, if documented, is in free text. And the CDC actually has just released some coding guidance for physicians last week that is worth a read uh, for folks uh, who, who need details. But, you know, I think like Ilona said earlier, we don't have an ICD-10 code, and there's, so there's no specific way to code for e-cig use uh, separate from just nicotine dependence as an ICD-10 code. And this is not just for documenting the history of e-cig use, but also uh, if there is a particular pulmonary or GI or other disease that may then be secondary to an e-cig use. But I think the CDC handout that they published just last week is a good starting point for physicians to look at um, to answer some of these questions. Great. Well, I want to thank both of you for joining me today in this podcast. I definitely feel better prepared to be able to take care of both inpatients and outpatients who are uh, vaping. Thank you very much. Thank, thank you. you. Laura.